It's a Wonderful Life is an American Christmas film produced and directed by Frank Capra. It's actually based on the short story, uh, The Greatest Gift, written by Philip Van Dornstern in 1939. The film is now considered one of the most loved movies in American cinema. It's become traditional viewing during the Christmas season. And if you've never watched it, I might encourage you to prioritize this movie in the weeks ahead. Released in 1946, the film stars James Stewart as George Bailey, a man who's given up his dreams in order to help others, and whose imminent suicide on Christmas Eve brings the intervention of his guardian angel, Clarence. Clarence shows George all the lives that he has touched and how different life in uh, Bedford Falls would be had he never been born. Now, I won't reveal the outcome to those of you who haven't watched the show, but it will say, suffice to say that for George, Clarence was a game changer. And for numbers of other people and the town of Bedford Falls, George Bailey was the game changer. I suspect that each one of us here today has had a few people or events or decisions in our lives that we would now consider game changers. Maybe it was a teacher or a coach, a a grandparent, an aunt and uncle, a pastor who redirected our youthful energy. Maybe it was moving out of the house or going off to college or relocating, uh, you know, across the country, falling in love and then getting married or falling out of love and breaking up with your boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance or getting divorced, having a child, or several children, choosing a certain job over another one, or maybe losing the job that we really enjoy, sustaining an injury in an accident, or someone close to us dying much too young. These are the kinds of events and people that can radically change the trajectory and even the purpose of our lives, can't they? I remember well at about 20 years of age, asking my now wife, Tina, to marry me. But um, she wasn't so sure. We were young. uh, We didn't know each other very well. And so after a number of weeks of indecision, true story, she put a yes on one slip of paper and a no on the other. She mixed them up, stuffed them into her Bible, and prayed that God would direct the outcome. She pulled out the yes, and the rest is history. Thank God. (laughs) But that event is one of the most significant watershed game changers for me. If it weren't for that, uh, I would not be married, at least to her, would not likely be here, and maybe you wouldn't be either. This morning, we're going to continue our month-long celebration of Advent and that we've entitled Good News of Great Joy. And we're going to discover today that Advent changes the trajectory of all of human history in this message that I've titled, Jesus Radically Changes Everything. Let's pray. Lord, we're, we're grateful for life and breath that enable us to gather together today, that you empower us, Lord, with freedom and uh wholeness to to set everything else aside that competes for our time and attention in a really busy time of year and give ourselves 
fundamentally to that which has become a part of our life, worshiping you. And we pray the prayer you taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, blessed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done right here on the earth, even as it's done in heaven. Bring your kingdom among us today, Lord, in all the ways you know we need. And not just in this room, Lord, but right next door as our kids are learning and growing and worshiping and praying too. And really, Lord, not just here, but in our our communities, the communities that we represent. Bring your kingdom now. Put power on your word to our lives is our prayer in your name. Amen. Our series title, Good News of Great Joy, comes from the, the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke, where we have a very simple and unadorned rendering of the original Christmas story. In this Holy Spirit-inspired account, um, Dr. Luke writes that the angel of the Lord surprised some unsuspecting shepherds with this heavenly birth announcement. We read it in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. But the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you'll recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. So we read here that the angel announced good news of great joy to all people, and that the uh, that there was to be peace on earth, that, The echo in the heavens of the choir was that there'd be peace on earth among those who please God. Well, as we approach Christmas Eve 2012, we might rightly ask, where is the good news, the great joy, and the peace on earth that the angel promised and of which the angel choir sang? You know, on the global scale, we now witness civil, ethnic, and religious wars that scourge the continents. Look at Syria and Egypt, Conflict in the Middle East, Israel and Palestine, the Sudan, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and other countries as well. AIDS is epidemic in the two-thirds world. Nearly two million die annually from the disease. Drought and famine plague many continents. Millions are still homeless refugees after Hurricane Sandy, the 2011 Japan earthquake, and the 2010 Indonesian tsunami, and the floods in Pakistan. The drug war and sex slave trafficking are now epidemic. At the national level, we we witness our country that's mired deeply in debt, deeply divided, and is now preparing to head over the fiscal cliff into the abyss of the unknown. We just don't know what's ahead. In the wake of the tragic shootings at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, we now have a greater anxiety for our children's safety and well-being and probably uh, more uncertain now about the future of our lives and our children and grandchildren than we've ever been before. And many of us start to look around and we wonder, where is the good news, the great joy, uh, the peace on earth? I mean, what's happened? What's gone wrong? What's the problem and when will it ever end?
it's obvious that mankind is not intrinsically better, good and getting better. Uh, it, it's not to deny the fact that there are millions of individuals uh, all around the globe that are living selfless and sacrificial lives, loving people, helping the less fortunate, and changing their communities for good. But it is to say, if you look at the headlines of the Journal Star today, or log on to MSNBC, that you'll witness the objective evidence that ever since creation, uh, mankind has continued this slow downward spiral uh, of brutality and murder and hatred and greed and genocide and oppression. People lie, cheat, steal, uh, rape, take advantage of others, oppress, marginalize. Institutions like governments are... Likewise, corrupt and repressive. We know that Hitler annihilated six million Jews. Mao's great leap forward was a drastic failure. Over 20 million Chinese lost their lives, starved to death. Pol Pot, the radical Marxist leader of, of Cambodia, butchered between one and two million of his own kinfolk right there in the killing fields. This year alone, 160,000 Christians will die through martyrdom all around the globe. The history books of every culture show that on his own, mankind does not love his neighbor as himself. We don't live by the golden rule and do unto others as we would have others do unto us. Something is broken. Mankind has a deep, deep need. The image of God, which marked his original creation handiwork there in the Garden of Eden, in Adam and Eve, our spiritual four parents, the image of God has been marred. Here's how the Bible describes the human condition in Paul's uh, letter to the Roman church in chapter 3, verse 23. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. So God is perfect in everything that he does. And this means relative to God's standard of perfection, none of us measures up. We fall short. Now, while all of us would admit to doing some of the things that we know, you know, are wrong, very few of us actually really think of ourselves as sinners, do we? When we compare ourselves to a thief or a drug dealer or a child molester or a mass murderer like Adam Lanza, we would say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, what would God have against me? You know, I'm, I'm an honest and sincere person. I try to live right and be good and support my family. I, I, I volunteer some of my time. I buy Girl Scout cookies and I, I vote in the election. I keep my grass mowed and my sidewalk shoveled. I mean, what would God have against me? Well, the big deal is that we are all sinners. That's what we just read. We all fall short. And in our deepest heart, if we were absolutely honest, we would all admit that we're continually prone to do things, to think things, and to say things that we know are wrong. That's called sin. The very first time that I deliberately disobeyed my mom and dad and went outside to play with matches with my friends, that marked me as a sinner. And then the cigarettes that I stole from the then Thompson food basket on Sheridan Avenue my membership in the Bad Boys Club, and then the debauchery of my teenage years were all just further proof of my sinfulness. And you could probably share the same stories. 
all of our sin and self-centeredness. And at times it's well hidden behind our holiday smiles. And, you know, it's nevertheless pervasive. And then at other times it's, it's just very visible and headline making. All of that sin and self-centeredness is evidence that something is broken. And all of us know that that inner condition of our heart and our mind is not going to be changed by sheer willpower and determination because we've all tried that. We can't just like, well, I'm going to start over. I'm going to go to church. As admirable as that is, it's not going to work. We've all tried. We need to experience a greater, more fundamental change in the human condition, don't we? We've got to get to the root rather than just dealing with the external symptoms. And only then will mankind have the uh, uh, even a hope to begin to make real substantial and lasting progress on uh, the things that build the peace on both the global and the, and the national fronts. So the good news of great joy is that God didn't leave mankind helpless and alone in the mess that we'd made of everything. Now, over the last month, we've been discovering that God had been foretelling this for thousands of years. First, through the promise of a redeemer to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when they first sinned. Then through a covenant with Abraham, the father of faith. Then thirdly, through the prophetic pictures of the reigns of Israel's kings, David and Solomon. And then in the years of the promises of the Old Testament prophets, particularly Isaiah and Daniel. He had been saying that he himself would intervene in the history of mankind to set things right. And then moved by his great unending love, God the Father came to the earth in the person of his Son on that first Christmas in the Incarnation. However, God the King's arrival was quite unpretentious and went almost unnoticed by the entire uh, uh, world. It was not as antiseptic as maybe our cards and our carols and the madrigal dinners like to suggest. You know, here's a, a travel-weary, young, unmarried Jewish couple who couldn't find any room in the local hostel. Uh, she's delivering her firstborn child, attended to only by her nervous fiancé, in a hillside animal shelter surrounded by hay and manure. He doesn't look much like the king of the world. And he certainly didn't arrive with any of the normal fanfare of royalty. And then we actually know little else about his childhood in the early adult years, other than that he grew up in a a typical Jewish family, uh, devout, working class to be sure, and had a few brothers and sisters. And then the curtain of silence closes over his life. And it was then just at the right time that Jesus burst onto the public scene to announce the purpose in his game-changing mission. We read a record of that announcement in Mark's Gospel, the first chapter. Verse 14, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news, or alternately, the good news of the kingdom of God in other translations. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near or at hand. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. 
So the good news of great joy that Jesus uh, uh, is, is announcing in his advent, in his coming, uh, the good news is signaling the arrival of God's kingdom. That's the gospel. That's the good news that Jesus was proclaiming. Now things can be different, Jesus is saying. We're no longer slaves to the devil's kingdom. And we can now experience the, that rich Old Testament word shalom, the shalom of God's kingdom, meaning the wholeness and, and the well-being and the completeness of God's rule. In Jesus' words and in his works and his way of life, he's demonstrating God the Father's inexhaustible, never-ending, never-changing love as he welcomed all men and women and children into relationship with God. You read uh, his life and message and ministry in the Gospels, and we see that over and over and over, Jesus told and then demonstrated that God's kingdom had actually really come. That God wasn't making a list and checking it twice to find out who'd been naughty and nice. He was inviting all men and women and children into relationship. He was extending God's mercy and forgiveness and hope to all people everywhere. Sinful people, broken people. Undeserving people, people with resumes and rap sheets too long to write. He was saying, you're all welcome into the kingdom. The table is set, the banquet's large, and God is inviting you to the feast. All people, everywhere. And his love and his mercy shocked the conventionally religious people of his day. He reached out to the sick and to the poor. Uh, to the lame, the marginalized, the prostitutes, the demonized, the insane, the the hurting, the hopeless, the hungry, the helpless, the down and out, the up and out. He reached out to them all. And he announced to them that sin's power was now broken. That they were free from whatever bondage held them in its suffocating grip. Rebellion, guilt, shame, fear, sickness, disease, death, broken. All of its power broken because the kingdom had come. This was good news. Friends, Jesus is always good news. As I've said before, if the Jesus you've believed in and embraced or received as true isn't good news, then it's not the biblical Jesus. The Jesus of the Gospels, of history in the Gospels, is good news. And this, his ministry in the kingdom was radical and subversive and revolutionary. In fact, it's the kind of good news that like street graffiti art would have been spray painted on the concrete in the towns and villages of Galilee and the surrounding area. The kind that might be suggested by the art on your program cover. It's spray painted on the concrete because it's rev- revolutionary. It's, it's subversive. It's the kind of thing that would have gone underground not distributed in the channels of everyday, ordinary uh, communication. Jesus was good news. And then in a crowning display of God's love, lavish love, Jesus was crucified as a criminal on the cross, paying the price for sin that you and I should have paid. I love how Jesus, quoted by the Apostle John in his gospel in the third chapter, summarized this powerful good news of great joy. John three sixteen to 18 from Eugene Peterson's The Message Translation. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son, and this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. 
by believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help to put the world right again. Jesus radically changes everything. He offers to all people everywhere, every culture, every age around the globe. He offers to all people everywhere the solution to mankind's fundamental basic need. He invites us into his kingdom where he wants us to experience God the Father's love, where God can then begin to go to set things to right in our lives and give us that whole and lasting life. And when we respond to his invitation, when we give Jesus our old, broken-down, sinful life, and then we trust him completely, at that very moment, he makes us brand new. His kingdom comes into our life. He forgives our sin. He releases us from its suffocating grip. He sets us free as he gives us a new life in the Spirit. We're literally born again or born from above. And the words of that powerful hymn that uh, that our, our worship team opened with today in Heart the Herald Angels sing, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. That's what Jesus does when we surrender and give him our life. He He causes everything to become new. His kingdom invades. He fills us with his personal, powerful, indwelling presence through the Holy Spirit. He does what we cannot do on our own through sheer willpower and determination or by turning over a new leaf or by going to church. He makes us new, and then he gives us his very presence, the Holy Spirit, to enable us every day to do what we cannot do in our own strength or power. Our relationship with God is healed and restored. God's anger against us as a sinner is satisfied, the book of Romans tells us, and we are reconciled to him. I love how the Apostle Paul described this good news of great joy in his letter to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians 5, here's how he summarizes the good news. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. He gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation, and so we are God's ambassadors. Christ is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Isn't that powerful? The good news of great joy is that Jesus changes everything. He's not holding our sins against us any longer. He's urging that we be reconciled to God, our Father. See, all people everywhere are like a man who fell into a pit and couldn't get himself out. A subjective person came along and said, well, I feel for you down there in that pit. An objective person walked by and said, well, it's logical that someone would fall in the pit. A Pharisee said, only bad people fall into pits. The mathematician calculated how he fell into the pit. 
a news reporter just wanted the exclusive story on the man falling in the pit. The IRS agent asked if the man was paying taxes on the pit. A self-pitying person said, you haven't seen anything till you've seen my pit. A fire and brimstone preacher said, you deserve the pit. A self-esteem therapist said, if you just believe in yourself, you can get out of that pit. An optimist said, things could be worse. A pessimist claimed, things will get worse. Jesus, seeing the man, took him by the hand and lifted him out of the pit. This morning, Jesus is offering to all people everywhere to lift us up out of the pit because he loves us. You can't do anything to earn it. That is, friends, you simply have to receive God's undeserved gift of his son, Christ, that came in the first advent. You receive the gift of the wholeness of his kingdom. No matter what you've done, no matter where you're at this morning, no matter how close or how far away from God you might perceive of yourself to be, no matter how hopeless or discouraged you are, no matter how complicated or messy your life situation is, no matter how many times you've tried to get on the road, Jesus is willing to receive you, lift you up out of the pit. I grew up with God-fearing parents who were true followers of Jesus Christ. I went to church regularly. I heard the gospel, much like you're hearing this morning. I would even have told you that I believed it was the truth, although I never really acted on it. That is until I was a freshman at the University of Illinois, where I began to be convicted by the Holy Spirit because of my sinful life. I was stressed, losing sleep, anxious and fearful, living at that time in room 413 Babcock Hall, Pennsylvania Avenue residence, with a third cousin named Bob. Bob was a Christian. I just thought he was weird. But it was in, in a large part through Bob's influence that I was finally convinced that it made rational sense to surrender my life to Christ. And so I remember it well on Tuesday night, 29th of October, 1974, at 10.30 p.m., he was fast asleep. I slipped out of my dorm room bed onto my knees, and I prayed a sincere prayer for the very first time in my whole life. And the prayer went something just about like this. Jesus, if you're real, then I ask that you please come into my life. And while I didn't understand it, at that moment, the weight of a thousand tons lifted off of my life. As I experienced what I would later come to understand through the Bible was a birth from above, when God forgave my sins and he came into my life in his kingdom, rearranged everything. At that moment, my life radically changed because Jesus changed me. And every day for almost the next 38 years now, been following Christ for 38 years, I've continued to experience the power of his indwelling presence as the Holy Spirit completely changes everything. Jesus lifted me up out of the pit and put me on a new road. Now, you can't receive God's gift of love, his gift of himself, by joining a church, this one or any other one. You can't get it by getting religious, by cleaning up your language, by turning over a new leaf, by trying to be good, by donating to the Salvation Army at Christmas. 
not even making a great New Year's resolution next weekend before 2013. None of these things, as good as they are and as admirable as they are, will affect the change of your inner spiritual condition. See, God's love is only capable of changing us when we do two things. Number one, we surrender. We quit resisting him in his attempts to love us and to draw us into his kingdom. We just we just accept it. We, we just say, Lord, I surrender. I completely, fully surrender. You wave the white flag. You you just give Jesus your life, your whole life, your entire messed up, sinful, broken, struggling, complex, filled with stuff life. And you say, Lord, I surrender. I'm fully, completely yours. Jesus, my life is yours. And secondly, then we trust him. We trust him as we invite him and his kingdom into every nook and cranny of our lives. We say, Lord, we believe that you know how to run our life better than we do. And so we we consciously, willfully trust him. And then we acknowledge uh, with God's help every day, the help of the indwelling spirit, We, with his help, we say, Jesus, I, I ask you to come and rule and reign. Bring your kingdom into my my everyday workaday life, my relationships, my family, my job, my attitudes, my reactions, my values, my time and energy, and how I spend my money and my hopes and dreams for the future. I want to love and serve you. I want to be your servant. Come and rule and reign. I, I trust you. Now, many of the messy, complicated situations in our life don't change right away and may take some time. But we change when we pray those prayers of surrender and trust. And we can immediately begin to experience his love and his forgiveness and his goodness and his mercy and his acceptance and the the good news of great joy, the, the peace that the angel choir sang. So maybe you've never fully surrendered your life to Jesus. Maybe you've grown up in been an active part of the church, or maybe not. You know, the truth is, a, a relationship with God consists of thousands of steps. And you've taken many of them already. But, but at some point along the way, you've got to make the one step as an act of willful, conscious, complete surrender to God. That's what we're seeing. And he's waiting for you today to experience his love as you surrender for that very first time. I understand that numbers of you, if you've never taken that step, might be somewhat fearful or even anxious about what surrendering means or what's on the other side of that surrender. I can just tell you that those of us who have already made that that willful, conscious surrender to Jesus would unanimously encourage you with this bit of advice. It's the best decision we have ever made. It radically changes everything for the good. Others of you are already Christ followers. And today you've been reminded of God's great love that came in the first advent. You have fond recollections of when you first tasted it. And you love hearing the story again, celebrating it, its expression in other people's lives as well. And this morning, you're hearing God's invitation to surrender your whole life again so that you can experience his life-changing, trajectory-changing love again. So no matter where you're at in this journey of being reconciled to God and following God, 
There, there are ways that we can make forward progress on that journey. And it's not by waiting for the appearance of our guardian angel Clarence or whatever his or her name might be. It's to say, I want to talk with you, God. I want to use the rational capacities you've given me and tell you how I feel. And so at this point, I'm going to wrap up by asking you to just bow your heads with me and pray along in your heart uh, these words the best that you possibly can. Simply and humbly. Lord, we thank you for the simple and powerful truths of the Christmas story, the first advent. And we thank you for your incredible love for us. Love that compelled you to die upon the cross for our sin and to be raised from the tomb to new life. And we ask you now, Lord, please forgive us of our sin. Change our inner spiritual condition from death to life. We want to take the next step now to begin to know you, to experience your real eternal life, and to have a relationship with you. We long for a whole and lasting life that you promised was ours. Fill us now with your Holy Spirit as we surrender our lives fully and completely to you and as we trust you. Help us, Lord, to trust you with our whole life and all the complex and messy circumstances in which we are now living. Each of us, Lord, desires to more completely experience the good news of great joy, the peace of mind and heart that the angels proclaimed on that first Christmas Eve. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.